Section 5 of The Story of My Childhood by Clara Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I think it usually occurs in small communities that there is one family or one house to which all strangers or newcomers naturally gravitate. Nothing was plainer than that ours was that house. All lecturers, upon any subject, clergymen on trial, whoever had a new idea to expound and was in need of an abiding place meanwhile, found one there. My father's active and liberal mind inclined him to examination and toleration, and his cordial hospitality was seconded by my mother's welcome to any one who could bring new thought or culture to herself or her family. These were the very earliest days of phrenology. The famous brothers O.S. and L.N. Fowler, worthy disciples of Spurzheim and Combe, were commencing their lifelong work. Young men of advanced ideas, thought, energy, and purpose. The phrenological journal, if existing at all, was in its infancy. The Fowler brothers were among the most interesting and popular lecturers in the country. Two courses of lectures by L. N. Fowler were arranged for our town, one for North and the other for South Oxford, or Oxford Plain, as it is better known. He very naturally became the guest of my father and mother. These two courses of lectures covered nearly a month of time. How can the value of the results of that month, extending through a lifetime, be put into words? How measure the worth of the ideas, the knowledge of oneself, and of others growing out of it? Aside from this was his aid and comfort to my mother in her perplexity concerning her incomprehensible child. I recall the long, earnest talks in which it was evident that I was the prime subject, although not clearly realizing it at the time. Upon one occasion there was no question. I was ill, of mumps, I believe, and to avoid loneliness was permitted to lie on the lounge in the large sitting-room through the day. Forgetting my presence, or believing me asleep, the conversation went on in my hearing, portions of which at this late day I recall. My mother remarked that none of her children had ever been so difficult to manage. "'Was I disobedient, exacting, or wayward?' asked Mr. Fowler. "'Oh, no, she often wished I were. She would then know what to do, for I would make my wants known, and they could be supplied.' but I was so timid and afraid of making trouble that they were in constant fear of neglecting me. I would do without the most needed article rather than ask for it, and my bashfulness increased rather than diminished as I grew older. As an illustration, she stated that only last Sunday the child appeared with bare hands when we were ready for church. Upon being asked where were her gloves, she reluctantly replied that she had none. They were worn out. Upon being asked why she had not said so and asked for others, the reply was a burst of tears and an attempt to leave the room. We would not permit this unhappy day at home alone and took her as she was, said my mother. All this sounded very badly to me as I heard it rehearsed. It was all true, all wrong. Would I, could I ever learn to do better? Mr. Fowler replied that these characteristics were all indicated, 
that however much her friends might suffer from them, she would always suffer more. They may be apparently outgrown, but the sensitive nature will always remain. She will never assert herself for herself. She will suffer wrong first, but for others she will be perfectly fearless. To my mother's anxious question, what shall I do, he replied, throw responsibility upon her. She has all the qualities of a teacher. As soon her age will permit, give her a school to teach. I well remember how this suggestion shocked me. I should not have remembered all these advices, but years after they were found with much more among my mother's carefully preserved papers, some correspondence must have followed. The depth and faithfulness of the interest felt was shown in the fact that the great reader of human character, through his long life in foreign lands as well as his own, never forgot the troublesome child. Occasional correspondence and valued meetings across the sea marked the milestones of life till one road came to an end. A great and true man and friend of humanity had gone, and the world was better for his having lived in it. At the close of the second term of school, the advice was acted upon, and it was arranged that I teach the school in District Number 9. My sister resided within the district. How well I remember the preparations, the efforts to look larger and older, the examination by the learned committee of one clergyman, one lawyer, and one justice of the peace, the certificate with excellent added at the close, the bright May morning over the dewy, grassy road to the schoolhouse, neither large nor new, and not a pupil in sight. On entering, I found my little school of forty pupils, all seated according to their own selection, quietly waiting with folded hands. Bright, rosy-cheeked boys and girls from four to thirteen, with the exception of four lads as tall and nearly as old as myself. These four boys naturally looked a little curiously at me, as if forming an opinion of how best to dispose of me, as rumor had it that on the preceding summer, not being en rapport with the young lady teacher, they had excluded her from the building and taken possession themselves. All arose as I entered, and remained standing until requested to sit. Never having observed how schools were opened, I was compelled, as one would say, to blaze my own way. I was too timid to address them, but holding my Bible, I said they may take their testaments and turn to the Sermon on the Mount. All who could read, read a verse each, I reading with them in turn. This opened the way for remarks upon the meaning of what they had read. I found them more ready to express themselves than I had expected, which was helpful to me as well. I asked them what they supposed the Savior meant by saying that they must love their enemies and do good to them that hated and misused them. This was a hard question, and they hesitated, until at length a little bright-eyed girl, with great earnestness, replied, I think he meant that you must be good to everybody, and mustn't quarrel, nor make nobody feel bad, and I'm going to try. An ominous smile crept over the rather hard faces of my four lads, but my response was so prompt, and my approval so hearty, that it disappeared, and they listened attentively but ventured no remarks. With this moderate beginning the day progressed, and night found us social, friendly, and classed for a school. 
Country schools did not admit of home dinners. I also remained. On the second or third day, an accident on their outside field of rough play called me to them. They had been playing unfairly and dangerously, and needed teaching, even to play well. I must have thought they required object lessons, for almost imperceptibly, either to them or to myself, I joined in the game and was playing with them. My four lads soon perceived that I was no stranger to their sports or their tricks, that my early education had not been neglected, and that they were not the first boys I had seen. When they found that I was as agile and as strong as themselves, that my throw was as sure and as straight as theirs, and that if they won a game it was because I permitted it, their respect knew no bounds. No courtesy within their knowledge was neglected. Their example was sufficient for the entire school. I have seen no finer type of boys. They were faithful to me in their boyhood, and in their manhood faithful to their country. Their blood crimsoned its hardest fields, and the little bright-eyed girl with the good resolve has made her whole life a blessing to others and still lives to follow the teaching given her. Little Emily has made nobody feel bad. My school was continued beyond the customary length of time, and its only hard feature was our parting. In memory, I see that pitiful group of children sobbing their way down the hill after the last goodbye was said, and I was little better. We had all been children together, and when, in accordance with the then custom at town meetings, the grades of the schools were named, and number nine stood first for discipline, I thought it the greatest injustice and remonstrated, affirming that there had been no discipline, that not one scholar had ever been disciplined. Child that I was, I did not know, that the surest test of discipline is its absence. If the published school report, so misunderstood by me, had given me displeasure, it had also given me a local reputation, quite as unexpected. I soon found myself the recipient of numerous invitations to teach in the nearby towns, especially such schools as required the discipline so largely accredited to, and so little deserved, by me. Declination on my part was not to be thought of. All members of the family were only too grateful for the progress I had made toward proper self-assurance to permit any backsliding and it was early settled that I accept the application of the Honorable Committee to teach the next summer school at what was known as the Millward in the adjoining town of Charlton, commencing on the first Monday in May of the following year, a master teaching the winter term. One day early in September my brother David, now one of the active, popular businessmen of the town, nearly took my breath away by inviting me to accompany him on a journey to the state of Maine, to be present at his wedding, and with him bring back the wife who was to grace his home and share his future life. There was now more lengthening of skirts and a rush of dressmaking such as I had never known before, and when two weeks later I found myself with my brother and a rather gay party of ladies and gentlemen, friends of his, at one of the most elegant hotels in Boston, where I had never been, waiting the arrival of a delayed steamer, I was so overcome by the dread of committing some impropriety or indiscretion which might embarrass my brother that I begged him to permit me to go back home. I was not distressed about what might be thought of me. I did not seem to care much about that. 
but how it might reflect upon my brother and the mortification that my awkwardness could not fail to inflict on him. I had never set foot on a vessel or seagoing craft of any kind, and when, in the glitter of that finely equipped steamer, I really crossed over a corner of the great Atlantic Ocean, the very waves of which touched other continents as well, I felt that my world was miraculously widening. It was another merry party and magnificent span of horses that met and galloped away with us over the country to our destination. But the crowning astonishment came when I was informed that it was the desire and decision of all parties that I act as bridesmaid, that I assist in introducing the younger of the guests, and stand beside the tall, handsome young bride who was to be my sister, while she pledged her troth to the brother dearer to me than my own life. This responsibility seemed to throw the whole world wide open to me. How well I remember the tearful resolution with which I pledged myself to try to overcome my troublesome propensities, and to strive only for the courage of the right, and for the fearlessness of true womanhood, so much needed and earnestly desired, and so painfully lacking. November found us home again. Under the circumstances, there must naturally be a share of social gaieties during the winter, and some preparations for my new school duties, and I waited with more or less apprehension for what would be my first life among strangers and the coming of my anticipated first of May. With slight variation, I could have joined truthfully in the dear old child refrain, Then wake and call me early, call me early, mother dear, for that will be the veriest day of all the glad new year. End of section 5 End of The Story of My Childhood by Clara Barton Read by Veronica Jenkins, Ottawa, Illinois